ready to rise above loud, angry headlines, longing for an alternative to the world's fighting and fear-mongering? Christianity Today magazine offers a trustworthy, faithful perspective on stories that matter to you, from the church next door to movements and ministries all around the world. Subscribe to CT for full access to in-depth reporting, insightful commentary, and redemptive storytelling, both online and in print. A subscription to CT also includes seasonal devotionals, special issues, and exclusive content. Visit orderct.com today or click the link in the show notes to get started and join a growing community of thoughtful evangelical Christians who value different news that makes a difference. That's orderct.com to subscribe today. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. I'm really excited about today's program because I've been thinking over the past couple weeks while my 16-year-old sons are adjusting into their new jobs at the grocery store, and I'm really proud of how they're doing at the grocery store, working hard. But then I realized that my guest today, my friend Ben Sass, United States Senator from Nebraska, no matter how hard my kids work, His kids are baling hay and birthing cattle and doing all sorts of stuff that you can find out about in a book that addresses the much bigger issue of what's happening in American life when it comes to kids not growing up called The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis, and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Really, really good and important book that you should read. Ben Sass, welcome to Signpost today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. You, are, of course, are very familiar with Carl Henry. Uh, we're both uh, evangelical Christians. Carl Henry was a, an evangelical theologian uh, back in the day who one time went to an evangelical megachurch uh, with a friend of mine. And he walked out, and my friend said, what did you think of the service? And he said, well, I think that this service signals the success of the evangelical movement because we constructed such good youth camps that now the, these kids have grown up and they just want to repeat their youth camps and youth ministry experiences over and over again and call it worship. Uh, what he was getting at in terms of the church is a lot of what you're hitting in this book, The Vanishing American Adult, about the fact that we're, we're in a time where it's very hard to distinguish between adolescence and grown-up life. Yeah. What drove you to consider this right now? Well, I was a college president for five years before I ran for Senate, whatever. Uh, it started four years ago, and for a year and a half, I lived on a campaign bus and thought about this right before, and then as I was getting on the campaign bus, those years I'd spent at the college. I was 37 when I was called to take over this 130-year-old liberal arts college, and I was a business turnaround guy. Nobody was hired. This was a school that had some serious financial troubles, and I was uh, not being hired for this job because anybody thought that I had brilliant insights into student life and student culture. I wasn't that much older than the students. But when I got to the school, it wasn't the finances that kept me up at night. It was the student culture experience. And I want to be really clear, The Vanishing American Adult is a constructive project. It is Mm -hmm. not a, let's beat up on millennials. It's a question of, where did we get this category of perpetual adolescence? Because adolescence is a pretty special thing. It's only about a two millennia old concept. But the idea of perpetual adolescence is something really, really different. And as you kind of flagged there, the inability to distinguish a 10-year-old from a 15-year-old from a 20-year-old from a 25-year-old 
that's not only a bad thing, which it is, but it's also a completely new thing. And I wanted to kind of make sense of it both descriptively, and then I wanted to make an argument normatively about how we had to do better by our kids than we're doing right now. Now, you talk in the book about the whole range of issues here, from parenting to work life to citizenship and so forth. But I'd like to to focus today on the church particularly, because I think this is a huge issue for churches all around the country. What do we do if we're trying to equip kids to be adults, we're trying to equip parents to rear children who are able to be uh, capable adults. One of the things that you talk about in the book is age segregation and, and the fact that kids are not around elderly people and vice versa often. How could the church help to do a better job of bringing generations together, do you think? Well, first of all, we believe in a faith once and for all delivered uh, unto the saints where across time and across place, we believe that we're worshiping uh, a God who's outside of history. He speaks and saves and acts inside history. Uh, but the worship event has a transcendent uh, element to it, and there's an eschatological uh, tree that grows and drops fruit down into, into this time and place. And so, first of all, just generational segregation is a bit odd, mm-hmm. just overall, but it's particularly odd for people who believe what we believe. I think if we if you drop somebody into um, modern American culture from 300 years ago or 3,000 years ago, I don't think there's much debate that the first thing that would shock them is just material abundance. Mm-hmm. What our technology has produced and the, the total amount of stuff is different than any time or place in human history. So that's what would shock them first. But I think the thing that would endure for them after 30 days of living among us is how weird it is that our teenagers and not just teenagers, but maybe 17-year-olds think the whole world might be 17-year-olds, and 13-year-olds think the whole world might be 13-year-olds. And it's really hard to have wisdom uh, as a cognitive matter, but also to experientially grow more mature without having the perspective of people who are at different life moments. And so I, I think it is really incumbent upon us to make sure that our kids grow up having been around people who've been through hardships that our kids won't have yet been able to see, but also who know the fact that this world is under the curse and the body is going to decline. And you need to be around some people who are not always 25, coveting the, uh, the vitality and vigor and body of a 21-year-old again, but people who are 80 and just wish they didn't hurt every day mm. and have yearnings that are wiser. And it, when I, our daughters are 15 and 13, our, our son is six, but our, we have two teenage daughters. And a 13-year-old girl experiencing 13-year-old girl teenage flight, it feels like a pretty big deal, unless you've recently been around people who are 60 and 75 and 90, then it kind of gets put in perspective. You realize other people have lived through this before, and maybe silly teenage 13-year-old girl flights should be kind of fluffed off like water off a duck's back. You know, I think there are a lot of youth pastors, youth ministers who are trying to grapple with what do you do when you have that that teenager who you're trying to minister to who's immersed in this world of video games and and immersive technologies and, and entertainment? How do you then address them with more meaningful stuff like the gospel without it seeming boring? In this sort of culture, I mean, you're you're raising kids in 21st century America. What what sort of advice would you give to to youth pastors and youth workers? Yeah, so I obviously um, haven't thought about this probably nearly as much as you have, but two of the touchstones that we use, and it's not directly to your youth pastor question, but let me try to get there. Um, Two things that we think about with our kids are production and consumption, uh, or production versus consumption is just a natural distinction that most people at most times and places 
would have known and mm-hmm. been able to make sense of. But our kids tend to be so insulated from work in this age, just because the product, not because they're lazy, but because the productive environments have been removed from the household in ways that hunter-gatherers and settled agrarian communities would have never conceived of having work be that far removed from the home, such that our kids think of progression through grades in school, and then they think of that's kind of their work, Mm -hmm. and then they think of different kinds of consumer experiences as what they do during their time not in school. And it's much more natural to think about how do I live out a life of gratitude to God by serving in my community if I think, what are the needs that I actually have that need to be met, and how can I get back, how can I be recreated to a posture of service again? And so clearly we come to church as beggars. Our hands are held out, and Luther would say our hands are either empty or we get to bring our sin. Mm -hmm. That's what we get to bring to the transaction. Uh, But when you, you come to church, there's clearly an element where we are just receiving the work of another. But when we leave church, we want to go out and figure out how we can be independent, how we can be um, whole enough, ready enough, mature enough, that we can turn to a servant posture to live out a life of gratitude. And I think many of our kids, and I think this is what the youth pastors have to grapple with, many of our kids come to the world thinking of it as just a cornucopia of different things they can consume. Well, I think our theology is better than that, and I also think, frankly, there's a lot of social science data now which shows that people end up not being very fulfilled in the world if they tend to think of it as just a venue in which they consume. It's much more useful to recognize that there are certain kinds of consumptions that are actually necessity. I want to learn to live a life of gratitude for shelter and for food and for basic fellowship um, and for you know, insulation against the elements, uh, clothes. I want to figure out how to say thank you a lot more often when my basic needs are met, but then I want to not have the denominator of my potential wants always growing because I end up just feeling like I've eaten a lot of cotton candy afterwards. I'd rather figure out like uh, an athlete fueling up before a big race. What do I need to do so that I can go out and serve? Well, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, when I see a healthy congregation, I typically see teenagers taking up the offering or teenagers working on a mission trip or, or, or something along those lines. They're actually included in the family, uh, which means included in the, in the service, in the work. Yeah, well said. And to your point, back to Carl Henry on uh, seeing sometimes youth camp. And let's be honest, so many youth camp experiences are great and genuinely life-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not, you and I are not having a fuddy-duddy conversation right. here. And yet, it's not a fully mature theology when you're 15 and 16 yet. And so one of the things that I see in many of our congregations is a sense that the reason we're generationally segregating is because we act like my musical preferences are the thing that drives what worship service I'm at, because it has a kind of concert feel to it. I think we need to get back to an old uh, reformer's sense of the dialogical nature of worship, where what's really happening is God is calling his people to come and assemble and to meet with him, and he's going to talk to us, and we're going to respond, and he's going to announce the law, and we're going to admit that we're sinners, and he's going to announce that we're forgiven, and we're going to sing out his praises, and he's going to teach us his word, and we're going to want to come to the table. Like, it's a back and forth of God and his people. It's Mm -hmm. not different types of consumers announcing our favorite record. Yeah. I have an Anglican priest friend who says that one of his goals is that his children would be bored in church. Not the entire time, but that they would have some experiences of that kind of restlessness of, of what's going to happen next, because that's mm. part of what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a mm. disciple. In the book, you talk uh, quite a bit about 
education, both within the home and, and on the outside. I think there are a lot of Christian parents who are trying to think through college. Uh, when you look around, you see all of the, the things that are in the headlines right now about things going on, on on college and university campuses, and you look around at the economy, a lot of things that you've been talking about in terms of automation and, and disruption in the economy. Should every parent have a goal of their kid going to college or not? Um, I don't think so, but I want to qualify it. I want I believe in human dignity and human potential in such a way that the kinds of things that a traditional liberal arts college should be things that I think almost all of our kids should be nurtured to become curious about. So I want to distinguish between education and schooling. And I don't think we, we draw that distinction with, I don't think the cleavage is nearly deep enough in our minds between the end goal of people who are curious about the diversity of creation and learning to love the good, the true, and the beautiful and want to constantly understand how things work and how people serve and different ways that people organize life across time and space and literature and places that you might travel to. I want our kids to be curious enough that everybody needs a big, broad education, and yet I'd love us to uncouple that from the tool that is schooling. Hmm. So I think math tertiary education, which is what we're sort of drifting to by public policy, this assumption that the completely normal thing is for every 18-year-old, 19-year-old to leave 12th grade and go off to college freshman year, something that's increasingly being called grade 13 in a lot of states right now, which I think is a disastrously bad idea, Hmm. sort of dumbing down what college should be. I don't think it's at all um, a necessity that everybody is in institutionalized schooling in, you know, that's 18th, 19th year of life, I want us to actually be skeptical to a certain degree of secondary schooling and primary schooling. I want parents to think in terms of what goals they want to accomplish with their kids in terms of both knowledge that they have, so cognitive things, but also especially habit formation. Hmm. And then I think we should be asking hard questions about what kind of tools advance those goals. And so I, I do want us to have a society of lifelong learners where when the economy disrupts 40 and 45 and 50 year olds in the future. I don't want us to doubt that our people are nimble enough that they can go get retrained for a new job and that they should still be curious about literature and music and whatever else else all through the course of their life. That doesn't mean that the natural, the only way to spend age 18 to 22 is in full-time schooling. Well, and one of the things that you did in The Vanishing American Adult is to have an entire chapter, which I loved, on the bookshelf, this this five-foot uh, bookshelf. And I agreed with almost everything, except as a Mississippian, I have to make a plug for <laughs> Eudora Welty's inclusion in your fiction category. But other than that, almost <laughs> a, almost perfect list. How should we work toward getting our children reading things that are substantive? I mean, the things that you mentioned here, it's Calvin's Institutes and Augustine's Confessions and... Alexis de Tocqueville, and, and a very rich and full breadth of reading. H- how do you inculcate that love and curiosity uh, for, for reading without just imposing another program on kids? Yeah, great question. I think we partly do impose the program, but I think we're trying to always play with, at our house, the quality and the quantity dimension. And so one of the things we want to do at our house, I don't want, by the way, I want to be clear um, this book does not set us up and our family as a model at all. We stumble and fall every day. But we have a, my wife and I have a shared theory of what we're trying to accomplish with our kids, and it's a lot easier to parent together uh, when, you're, when your oars are directed the same way. Um, we want to figure out how you can parent with the grain as much as possible. 
So when our kids are excited or curious about something, I you know, Magic Treehouse series or Hardy Boys or, you know, Boxcar Children or whatever when they're little, one of the first things we just did is just figure out a way to throw more um, adulation and reward at them when they wanted to read more, 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 more. Mm. So we wanted to just create an addiction to reading so they thought of themselves as kids who read. There's that famous line, um, the, the adult man who doesn't read has no advantage over the adult man who can't read. Yeah. You know, there's no one who really thinks that being illiterate would be a good thing, and yet the vast majority of our public doesn't read at all. The average American reads about 19 minutes a day, and the older you are, the more you read. So our young people are reading much, much less uh, than in the past. And if you think, like I do, that Gutenberg is one of the true fathers of America, there's some pretty basic questions about whether or not America can work if you don't have the dispassionate habit of a reading public. So first, we just wanted to inculcate that habit. And then over time, we tried to substitute more quality for quantity. And so we played a game at our house. There's a guy named Kevy Troy, who's a really interesting uh, author. He's written about stuff as wide-ranging as presidential responses to catastrophes and pandemics. And he's written a lot about pop culture, that sort of history of uh, from kind of uh, Washington's reading to Eisenhower's TV watching, to Obama's use of social media. Tevi Troy, really interesting author. And he has a game that he plays with his kids called the Century Club. And he actually got President George W. Bush to participate in it with him for a couple of years when he worked in the White House. And the goal is to read 100 books in a year. Hmm. A lot of people can read two books, you know, one week of August vacation at the beach. But it's pretty tough to keep up a rhythm of two books per week for the course of a year. And our kids have never succeeded, by the way, but we've tried this the last two or three years where we, we try to push them toward 100 books a year. And we let them start with, you know, almost cotton candy as stuff that they wanted to read, Encyclopedia Brown or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then over time, we started just imposing in a substitution of, okay, you read that book, which is, you know, pretty much like ice cream. Now we're going to give you three choices of broccoli versus spinach versus asparagus. You can choose the next book among these three, but here we're giving you three good choices. And it's tended to work pretty well. And that, and that actually, something along those lines could be done even within the church when you're dealing with kids who may not have involved parents involved. Yeah, interesting. You know, you, you and I have gone this whole program, and there's one thing we have not talked about at all, and that's politics. And uh, I think that's important because uh, it seems as though uh, you and I both are saying uh, repeatedly uh, that politics is not the most important thing uh, in our lives. And for you, as a U.S. senator, that's, that's a really counterintuitive thing to say. And I think uh, the book, you go through the entire book, and at the end you say, you'll notice this isn't a policy book. Uh, this isn't a, a political book. It's a cultural book. Why is that so important right now? Thanks. Uh, so I would say there's small policy, which is what Washington's dealing with now. There's big policy, uh, which is a genre of stuff we're not dealing with, but we should. And then there's stuff above policy, which is the sort of American civic. And oh, by the way, we haven't even gotten here to really important stuff about theology and sociology here. Mm -hmm. But just at the level of common grace and the American experiment, our founders believed in limited government because they believed in the brokenness of humanity. Therefore, government was necessary to restrain evil and to, to sort of preserve and maintain a framework for ordered liberty. But the really interesting things in the world not just for Christians, but for everybody. The really interesting things in the world are your loves. They're your affections. They're your habits. They're the places you spend your time. They're the things you persuade people to join with you in doing. 
for common projects. And I think America is premised on the idea that the most interesting things are by volunteerism and persuasion and sort of uh, communal action that doesn't have to be compelled by government. Government obviously has a role, but government in the American understanding can't make any sense until you have a prior understanding of universal human dignity and the reasons why we believe in limited government or anti-statism or the fact that um, natural rights precede government and government is our shared project to secure them. Government isn't the author of our or source of our rights. All of that stuff is a shared American narrative that precedes politics. These are, this is a pre-political understanding of what America is about. And then we can have policy debates. By the way, we're not having the big ones we should. How do you, how do you have a national security strategy for an agent cyber and jihad and non-state actors? How do you think about public policy investment when you're going to have more and more people um, losing their jobs? That's a, that's not just disintermediated out of a firm, but maybe out of a whole industry when they're 40 and 45 and 50 and 55 years old. We are not at all ready to have big policy debates when we can't first pause and make sure that our kids understand why we have a First Amendment. Hmm. I mean, you flagged a little bit ago the safe space movement on the campuses. That One of the stats that keeps me up at night is that 41% of Americans under age 35 tell pollsters that they think the First Amendment is dangerous because hmm. you might use your freedom of speech to say something that would hurt someone else's feelings. I, I sort of understand that as the purpose of America, that we protect each other from physical violence so that we're free to argue about things that might hurt each other's feelings or be scary or wrestle with, as our founders were doing, the nature of heaven and hell. Yeah. You know, our founders had uh, a cultural and religious pluralism in the way they built America, not because they didn't think that religious questions had answers that thoughtful people should be wrestling through, but because they thought that the soul couldn't possibly be compelled to an answer. You need your body to be protected so that you can have free speech and debate really big ideas. And right now, there is a, I think, a real panic of uncertainty about the American idea, and we're descending into a kind of really lame tribalism where people are willing to do identity politics on the right when it used to just be, I mean, 40 years ago, even the left thought identity politics were terrible. Mm-hmm. Then from you know, 35, 30 years ago, the left started to embrace something which is a really dangerously anti-American idea that that tribe should define us rather than the American idea about universal human dignity. And now we see a bunch of people on the right saying, well, if the left's going to be tribal and identity politics based, then we should do the same thing. No, we should do better and we should call the next generation to better and we should call the other political party to better. And right now we're not doing any of that stuff. And that's well upstream from any of the particular policy fights we're having in D.C., about legislation. Well, that's a very Augustinian place to end, which reminds me how grateful I always am every time I talk to you for a U.S. senator who knows who Augustine is <laughs> and is able to talk about an Augustinian framework uh, for these things. Ben Sass, uh, the book is called The Vanishing American Adult. Thanks for being with us today on Signpost. Russ, well, thanks for how you fulfill your calling. We benefit from your work in our house. Thank you. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. 
Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.